0: So I want to thank you all for being back tonight, night of answering questions and specifically, man, so that kind of a, there we go, all right. It's kind of funny, um, earlier today, where we were at for our community group, our connect group, the lights were off in there as well. So anyway, it seems like uh, people are walking in darkness all around me right now. Uh, Maybe I'm bringing the darkness, I'm not sure. But anyway, uh, thank you for coming back for our night of answering questions and specifically on a Labor Day weekend. We know that uh, a lot of times families in town, so thank you all for being back. Um, we are still working on questions that you all submitted earlier in the spring, and these are questions related to life and doctrine, Christian living, uh, culture, issues like that. Um, as you know, I'm trying to tackle maybe five to ten of these different questions each time we get together tonight, we're going to make a run at the largest group so far. I'm going to try to address eight questions this evening. Um, we are advertising all of the major topics in advance. If you would like to know what those topics are and you're, you don't currently know, we would encourage you to check it out in our Friday newsletter that goes out. If you are not currently signed up on that newsletter, you can do that. Simply go into sherwoodbaptist.net, right in the very center of the home. Uh, Page there's a section that says newsletter. Click on that and it'll allow you to sign up. Um, Also, please remember that the answers that I am providing on these nights, it is one believer's attempt to reasonably and biblically address questions that are coming to me. I I do not know who actually sends the questions in. Those are anonymous. Uh, I do not know all of the pieces surrounding those questions, so I simply have the question that comes, and I will read it to you the exact same way that it came to me. Um, Also, know that if there is not... An answer that I know of, I want to try to say that, and if there's not an answer that I can share with you biblically because, for example, maybe Scripture is silent on that topic, then I want to be very careful to say that as well. I, I don't want to speak in if the Word of God is silent on a topic. I would just rather say, according to Scripture, as best I can see, there's not an answer that has been given on that. So, that being said, um, I'm going to have a word of prayer, and then we're going to jump into our first question of the night. Heavenly Father, this evening we ask again, Lord, that your spirit guide us into all truth. Help us to be able to clearly see what the truths of your word are in relation to the questions that have been submitted. And God, may you walk us through each part of this. In Jesus' name, amen. So question number one that came to me is, what do you do about a friend who is falling away from their faith? This is a question that I have received more times than I care to mention. It's a very common question. Also recognizing the fact that I do not know who sent this in, I do not know the circumstances behind it, um, I would probably go broad in my answer and say, I'm not sure if it's a case of somebody falling away from their faith or maybe a case of somebody falling out of fellowship with a local church. And those are two different things, but we're going to address both, both of them. Um, I would look at a person falling away from their faith as an individual who has made a profession of faith in Christ. They have been part of a biblical community, growing, learning, maturing, serving. They're engaged in the faith. And at the same time, they're now struggling with their faith in God, in his person, in his word, in his will, in his desires, something like that. There is a struggle in which they are now falling away, so to speak. Um, There's another side of that, and that is somebody who is falling out of fellowship with their church. And that could describe someone who their faith in God is completely intact. They're not doubting anything about God, but maybe they've been hurt by their church or maybe they have experienced disappointment in the church, or for that matter, maybe they've been trying to get engaged in a church for a while and they've just not found that connection, so they disengage. And so there's a part of that where it is either falling away from the faith or they are falling out of fellowship with a specific church. Either direction you want to go, I think the answer starts, moves forward, and ends in the same place. We start in prayer, and we move forward in prayer. That is, you pray for that individual, whoever that might be, that God would grab their heart, that God would be so clear in his work, in his conviction, in his activity in their life, praying for that individual that God would be so overwhelmingly obvious that there's no way they can get around him and that God would be the one to open up an opportunity for you to speak into that person's life if he so desires it. Begins in prayer, moves forward in prayer. Sometimes if you go to that individual and and prayer has not preceded the conversation, sometimes we can assume we know what's going on and we don't know what's going on. Have you ever been in one of those moments before where it's like you know exactly what they're walking through and you find out that's not what they're walking through. That's not even what they're struggling with. So it is important that we take time to be prayed up and prepared and go to the person and ask them simply, um, is there a time that you would want to talk? I, maybe, maybe you can even introduce it by saying, you know, God's laid you on my heart recently. I, I noticed that you seem to be walking with some some burdens or some things you're processing. I don't know what's happening, but I'm available. Would you like to get together and talk? And sometimes that person might very quickly say, no, I'm not ready for that. If that's the case, respect the person and continue to pray for them. It might be that they say, yes, here's what's going on. And they might lay out more than what you are prepared to receive in that moment. Uh, All I can tell you is in that moment, listen, do not judge. Do not think you know what they're going through. Do not say, I've been there before. Some, even if there's points of correlation, it does not mean we know exactly what that other person is going through. So I encourage you, listen to what they're saying. Don't judge, but in the moment, just say, if you would like to talk further, I'm available. And if they say yes, then ask God to give you wisdom to share his word in the right way with the person at the right time. Lives do not change because we give our wisdom to anyone. Lives change because they encounter the truths of the word of God. Lives change because God is the one doing the work behind the scenes. He is convicting, he is calming, he is correcting, he is drawing, he is teaching, he is maturing. It has to be God, the one doing the work. So pray, be a friend, listen attentively, respond as God opens the doors. Question number two, how do I navigate life as a young person in a world full of temptation? Great question. So if this individual is a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, and I I stress the word if, if they are a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, then I'm going to give three specific passages in just a moment. Now let me talk about the if part of that. I say if, because if a person is not a follower of Jesus Christ and they are battling with temptation, their first and greatest need is to repent of their sin by placing faith in Jesus Christ. They need to be born again. Apart from the indwelling presence of God in a person's life, They do not have the ability to decipher between truth and deception. They don't have the ability to act upon God's word. They need the indwelling spirit of God in order to operate through them, enabling them to live according to what Scripture declares. So if the person is truly saved, I've got three passages I want to give you. Uh, Here's the three passages. Psalm 119, verse number 2. Psalm 119, verse 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. 2 Timothy 2, 22. And then also James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. Those three verses. If that is all the Bible that somebody has when facing temptation, that is more than enough scripture to walk in victory with what we just described just then. So let me walk you through each of those as to why they are so important here. Psalm 119, excuse me, I think this is verse number nine. I said two, but it's supposed to be verse number nine. Psalm 119, verse nine, it reminds us of the importance of knowing and keeping God's word. Here's what it says. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. The path of purity is paved in obedience with the word of God. You, one, need to know the word of God. You need to be in the word. And also a second piece of that is walking in obedience to it. Uh, Jesus illustrates this beautifully when it comes to the temptation in the wilderness by Satan, Matthew chapter four. Each time the temptation came, he responded with the word. Temptation comes, responds with the word. Temptation comes, responds with the word. We need to be in the word and we need to be walking in obedience with it. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 22 emphasizes the importance of fleeing youthful lust. It says, now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. In that text, the emphasis is on flee, run, get away. Do not stay in that situation. Do not try to resist by yourself. Uh, Rather than staying in a spiritually dangerous place, all the while promising yourself that you're not gonna give in to the temptation this time, or trying to convince yourself that you're mature enough to handle it at this moment, or trying to justify to yourself that your presence is absolutely required in that moment, instead of doing all of that, just run. Get away. The text says flee youthful lust in genesis 39 uh, joseph ran whenever he was faced with temptation from potiphar's wife and he ran and left his jacket his coat in her hand he might have lost his jacket but he kept his character so run get away the next one with second timothy 2 is it not only tells us what we run from it tells us what we run towards It says, pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Temptation does not go away because we try not to think about it. Temptation becomes less and less a temptation when our mind is captivated by bigger, greater and more incredible things. Pursue the right things. Pursue what it says, righteousness, faith, love and peace. Also, notice the fact it says, pursue that with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. There is safety in community with other believers. So one of the reasons people struggle with temptation, they're falling with that temptation, is because they're trying to resist the temptation by themselves, separated from the rest of the body of Christ. One of the biggest times that people see that is usually when somebody graduates from high school, they go to college, they're away from home, they're out with their friends, they're not under the immediate supervision of parents, and they're disconnected a little bit, and they face temptations, and they keep falling. And they face temptation, and they fall. And a part of that is the fact many times they're not also engaged with a body of believers around them who's saying we can walk in holiness. We can walk in purity and having somebody who is willing to walk with you. So the text says, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. The final piece that I would say there, our third passage is James chapter four, verses six through 10. It emphasizes the importance of humility and grace in the context of temptation. The text says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Then it says, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. What an incredibly beautiful text. But here's what it's saying. God gives grace to the humble. I've given the definition many times. Grace is God's unmerited favor where he does in us and through us and for us what we cannot do for ourselves. When someone is facing temptation and they're struggling with that temptation, they need God's grace. They need God to do in them and through them and for them what they are struggling to do for themselves but I'll also encourage you to think about the other parts of that same text. It says, submit to God and resist the devil. You cannot resist the enemy if you have not yet submitted to God. There is a sequence that needs to happen. It says, draw near to God. Beautifully describing the fact we need to abide in Christ. We need to be in his presence, be in his word, be in fellowship with him. It also says, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. We cannot hold on to the very things that are bringing temptation and expect ourselves to rise above that temptation. He was like, get rid of those things. Purify your hands and your hearts. Then it says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Now, that's an interesting description, but it describes someone who is genuinely moved and broken over their sin. There needs to be that genuine brokenness. And then finally, it says, humble yourselves before God. God has a way of exalting, lifting up, and honoring those who have come to the place they are okay with saying, God, I cannot, but you can through me. And they humbly submit themselves before him. So those are just three passages. There's many others in scripture, but those are three that I would encourage someone who is battling with temptation. Question number three, it says, I'm a believer and I have a sin that continues to come back. Am I saved and am I in the book of life? How do I get away from the sin that won't leave me? Okay, good question. And I can only answer part of this. I cannot tell someone, are you saved? And are you in the book of life? What I can tell you is everyone who is genuinely saved is in the Lamb's book of life. I can tell you clearly that even a person who is saved, it doesn't mean they will not still struggle with sin. Sin is a part of A fallen condition and even though a person might be born again it doesn't mean the temptation is gone it doesn't mean the flesh is gone so because of the Holy Spirit abiding in a person because of the Holy Spirit indwelling that person there is now an enablement that comes because the fact they are saved so when a person sins they are not sinning because they have to they are sinning by choice in that moment Now, I'm only going to spend a few moments on this, not because the question itself is not important. I'm only going to spend a few more moments on this because a lot of the same exact answer is what I just went through about dealing with temptation. In other words, if you consistently deal with temptation well, Lord willing, you're not dealing with the sin problem as it is in this particular section. But I I want to draw your attention back to one of the books that we had on our book of the month list encouraging people to read about a year ago. It's by Clyde Cranford. And in the book, the book is entitled Because We Love Him. He actually answered the question, why do Christians continue to sin? And that's one of those issues that Christians have been battling out with for a long time. Like, God, I, I'm doing the things I don't wanna do and I'm not doing the things I want to do. Like, God, what is going on on the inside? And when Clyde Cranford answered that question, people did not like his answer. When asked the question, why do Christians continue to sin? His answer was, you don't love God. Now people get upset when you say something like that. They're like, well, you can't tell me I love God or don't love God, that's between me and God. And his response was, I didn't say that, Jesus said that. John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so what he wanted to do is say, if there is a sin problem, It's pointing back to a love problem. So here's the sequence he would walk people through. Why do we sin? He would say, because we don't love God. That's what Jesus says, John 14, 15. The question is, why don't we love God? Because we don't know God. Why don't we know God? Because we don't spend time with God. Why don't we spend time with God? Because we don't see the need to spend time with God. Why don't we see the need because of pride? We think we can do it ourselves. So he would focus on that. the root issue comes back to pride. But then on the opposite side, he said, start with humility at the bottom. Remember our text, James chapter 4, 6 through 10. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. That is, there is enablement that comes through humility. So when you start in humility, then that person sees the need to be with God. Why do they see the need to be with Him? Because they recognize, apart from Him, you can do nothing. So when we recognize our need, we spend time with God. When we spend time with God, we get to know God. When we get to know God, we love God, and when we love God, we obey Him one starts in pride the other starts in humility a sin problem always points back to a relational deficiency so here's a couple of other thoughts to keep in mind Um, i've said it before it's better to shun the bait than struggle in the snare it is easier to fight the battle at a temptation level than to fight for freedom at an enslavement level if If we do not take the temptation part seriously, the sin struggle is going to be hard. Also, temptation by itself is not a sin. We we know that. Jesus was tempted. But temptation becomes a sin when we entertain that temptation, mentally embrace that temptation, and or give in to that temptation. What I want to stress there is it doesn't mean a person has to act on that temptation for it to become a sin. Let me give you a couple of clear examples lust, jealousy, criticism. You could go in and talk about covetousness, bitterness. All of those are considered to be sins according to Scripture, and yet, Those are sins that are not acted out as much as they are kept within. It's the fact that a person has entertained, they've embraced that temptation, they've allowed it to just sink in. The next part I would say is it's best to resist temptation at first detection than to delay resistance until later. The moment temptation comes to mind, that's the moment right there for resistance to begin. Don't, don't entertain and think it's gonna be okay, I'll deal with this later. The moment it is first detected, that's the best time. The longer you wait to resist temptation, the harder it becomes to resist. Also, we're never going to be completely perfect when it comes to sin on this side of heaven. But it does not mean that we do not strive for holiness and righteousness in every part of our life. By God's grace, we will progressively get to a place where we look back and we can say without a doubt, I'm not where I can be, but I'm definitely not where I was. There's a progression that needs to happen there. The next piece is the battle is in the mind. We have to remember that. The battle is happening in the mind. You'll also recognize the fact that your feet and your actions will take a path that your mind has already traveled. Be very, very careful about what you let into your mind. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And then a piece you all have heard me say over and over, I'm gonna give it to you again. Everything God desires to do in and through your life, he will accomplish out of the overflow of your relationship with him. This is no different. If you're talking about how do you stand under temptation, how do you deal with sins that keep coming back, It is the fact that God will address those things out of the overflow of relationship with him. That is exactly what Clyde Cranford was pointing people back to in saying if there is a sin problem, it points to a relational deficiency. Focus on the intimate relationship with God and God has a way of pulling out, rooting out, empowering, focusing, and enabling a person to walk in victory over areas of sin that have been parts of their life for years. Here's our next one. Question number four. How do I respond to a spiritual leader who deceives the church? It could be hidden sin or bad theology. Great question. As best I can tell from scripture, you handle that situation pretty much the exact same way you would handle any type of confrontation with sin with one caveat, and I'm going to get to that in just a moment, But I I want to begin by saying there is a way in which we confront areas of sin, areas of misunderstanding, confrontation between believers, so I want to follow that, and then we're going to put that one specific passage at the end. So the first thing I would encourage the person to do is be prayerful and make sure you're right with God. Be prayerful and make sure you're right with God. Do not rush into a confrontation when you are mad. Do not jump in when you're wanting to take somebody's head off and you're aggravated and you're tired. Don't don't jump in at that point. Pray and make sure you are right with God. Also, when you are prayed up, go directly to that person, not 50 other people. You go to them. That is a Matthew 18 principle. Next, be humble in your approach. Ask questions to understand and don't be accusatorial. There's a reason for this. It may be in taking time to talk to the person, you find out you got bad intel. It might be that you talk to them and you're like, that's not what I heard at all. That's that's not what I was thinking. Sometimes, in fact, I would say many times, there's issues of misunderstanding in the body where there's a person who is saying something and they are saying it in this context with this tone, but it's received in this way in a different a tone. It, it's There's many times it's a misunderstanding in the body. And the moment somebody comes in with accusations and anger, it usually only raises barriers and it raises tensions. Next, if the details are not clear. If the situation is maybe about perspective or motivation behind a particular event or if it's possible it's just a misunderstanding, I would encourage believers give the benefit of the doubt and allow truth to come out in time. The next part I would say is enter the conversation with a heart for reconciliation. The heart in which we go into that conversation has a lot to do with the way the conversation itself goes. If you go in to prove a point, that might be all that happens. You prove a point, but it still doesn't address things the way it needs to be addressed. So I said there's one other caveat. There's one other piece specific to addressing spiritual leaders. It's actually found in 1 Timothy chapter number 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, it's, the whole section is verses 19 through 21. But here's what it says about confronting an elder, a pastor, spiritual leader. It says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now now let's pause there for just a moment. Keep in mind, every congregation is comprised of people who are flawed, people who are saved, and those who are lost. And by the way, even though the body of Christ should be the body of Christ, those are the redeemed, there's a lot of times people have been a part of a church and they don't find out until later, they weren't actually saved. So you're gonna have both within church. And when you bring flawed people, hurting people, people who are working through problems and sin and misunderstanding, you bring that all together in one place, there are going to be accusations and misunderstandings that happen throughout the body and pastors are not exempt from that at all. Many times by virtue of the fact that pastors are very visible, and sometimes they're brought in on a lot of those difficult moments, many times the conversation gets rough and accusations also come towards the pastor. Sometimes those pastors earn the accusations that are coming, and sometimes it's a situation of dealing with difficult problems that simply need to be handled in a biblical way. That being said, The text says, do not admit a charge against an elder. The word admit means acknowledge something to be correct, but then it very quickly tells us the second part, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. In other words, refuse to allow false accusations to spread in the body, and that's for anyone, but specifically in this text, it's talking about pastors. Then he gives a threefold Practice of how it is that you address a spiritual leader who is maybe erring, theologically wrong, caught in sin, whatever the case might be. First part of that is verify the accusation. If the accusation proves to be false, members within the body should reprove the one making a meritless accusation. It might be a misunderstanding. It might be that there's just people are upset about some other issue. It it might be that there's an unmet expectation or there was a perception of what might have happened. We should not be quick to take offense. Rather, we should be quick to say, God, give us wisdom to discern things well. Two or more witnesses are called upon in order to see, is this a sin problem? Once it is confirmed, it has to be addressed the exact same way you would address sin in any other part of the body, following Matthew chapter 18. The second part of that would be publicly reprove the unrepentant elder. Paul's language in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20 is uncompromising. It says, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that they The rest may stand in fear. Uh, Persistence in sin emphasizes a willful continuance of that sin. In other words, if the private conversation to deal with sin has not brought about repentance, it's saying you need to rebuke that person. Doesn't matter whether or not they're an elder, you rebuke them before all so that there is a fear of God that comes to those who are part of the body. Third part of that is do nothing with partiality. In verse number 21, he says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging doing nothing from partiality. In other words, don't play favorites. Don't don't act in partiality. An elder's office does not put them above correction. And at the same time, Paul is very clear the congregation is called to approach those situations in humility, with verification, and with care. Question number five. If we are to look more like heaven, why has, was there only one non-white deacon and wife, and does this mean we need to be more intentional with discipling of non-whites? Great question. By the way, There's all sorts of questions that uh, if you ask people, tell us what's on your mind, you're gonna get what's on their mind. And these are good questions that we need to answer within the church. So let me do this as best I possibly know how. All right, so you all know a piece that I have shared multiple times that I continue to pray and I ask others to pray is that Sherwood would be just as diverse as the world that Christ came to save. I'm praying God give us diversity in age, diversity in ethnicity, diversity in socioeconomic status. God bring diversity. There is something unbelievably beautiful about seeing the vastness of God's kingdom, people coming together and worshiping in one place. Now, while there is still work that has to happen there, I also do not wanna take away from the beautiful diversity that God has already brought and is bringing. I don't know if a lot of people know this, but this is one of the most diverse churches in this city, and it is also one of the most diverse churches in the country. So what we are already seeing is miraculous in many ways. It doesn't mean there cannot still be areas of improvement, but at the same time, let's not take away from what God has done. So in the particular situation that we have, the one that brought this question about the deacon body, I would say it first depends on when you look at the deacon body. And the reason I say that is because our deacon body changes constantly, every single year, different deacon body. So if you all have not picked these up, these are prayer cards for the deacons and their wives praying over them, and I've got one from last year, I've got one from this year. The reason I say it all depends on when you look at the deacon body is because from last year there are three non-white, deacon and deacon's wives who were part of the deacon body there. This year, there was one. But here's the crazy part. I actually took the time to go through and compare the two. Between the two cards, 12 couples were on both cards, 14 couples were brand new on the new card, and seven couples rolled completely off of both cards. So when I say it's a new deacon body literally every single year, it's a new deacon body. The makeup is always going to be different. And a part of that comes back to how it is that deacons are brought in to service within the church. Now, one of the things that I would also want to say at this point is we are consistently praying for greater diversity in this church. That is on the staff, on the stage, in leadership teams, in the deacon body, in the membership. We are excited about God bringing diversity into the church. For those who are not sure how the process for electing deacons happens here, let me walk through that because I I wanna make sure that everybody knows what this is all about. So every September for two weeks, there is an appeal that goes out through the e-newsletter, that is the Sherwood newsletter, comes out on Fridays. There's an appeal that goes out for people to, to nominate, to bring in names of potential future deacons. And we encourage people to do that for two weeks. Give us those particular names. Now, when those names come in, those are going to be ones run through a process. And there are qualifications that we have when it comes to deacons. That is, the person has to be a resident member of the church who's at least 24 years old, having been a member for at least one year prior to being nominated, And then the individual fits the qualifications of a deacon found in Acts chapter 6 as well as in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So when those names come in, they go before the executive pastor as well as the deacon administrative team. And that group comes together to find out are they willing to serve and are they able to serve based upon those qualifications. Once a candidate goes through that process, they are to sign a deacon commitment letter. And when they do that, they will step into service for one year. That is from January through December. They can step into service for three consecutive years, but after the third year, they have to come off of the deacon body, take a time to rest, and then they can come back on nominated down the road. So the reason I bring that up is one, because this upcoming Friday is when that newsletter is coming out when we are encouraging people to send in your nominations. By the way, we did that specifically this Sunday to make sure there's not a huge length of time between when we address it and when there's an opportunity for people to be able to respond. So that's the time to do it. But here's the other piece that I think is so incredibly important and why we need you all to give in those names. There could be somebody who goes all the way through that process. They are at least 24 years old, a resident member. They've been here at least for a year in membership. They fit every qualification. They have been vetted through that system and the person is completely able to serve. And then when we ask, they might say, thank you for the opportunity, but right now because of commitments that I've already made, because of what I'm going through in my life, now's not a good time. The reason I I bring that up is because even though somebody has been nominated and they are a qualified candidate, it doesn't always mean that that's going to be the best year for them to serve, but that is between them and the Lord. So that's why it's so important that we get a a good group of people coming in, because some people will be a great deacon two years from now. But right now, based on the station and life they're in, they're not able to serve in that capacity. And by the way, let me emphasize that. Not able to serve in that capacity. The deacon body is a serving body. And if you all have not picked up a card to pray over the deacons and their spouses, I encourage you to do that. This is a group who is making sure people don't fall through the cracks. This is a group that they are praying for those who are homebound. They are praying for those who are sick. They are following up on people within the church. They they are the ones who are primary points of contact for widows and widowers. It is a job that is not a glorious looking job title, but it is a biblical title and it is necessary in the body of Christ. I praise God for what's happening within the deacon body. All right, next one. Question number six. How are we to reconcile Jesus' warning in Matthew chapter 7 about not casting pearls before swine with our personal evangelism? At what point biblically are we casting pearls before swine? When or is it every time to stop witnessing to a friend or family member who is hostile to the gospel? I'm just going to pull up a chair on this one. So... um. First, Jesus' statement could absolutely be put under the hard sayings of Jesus. That, that is not one of those statements that the, the basic reading is going to very clearly give you an understanding of what that, that statement is all about. So you got to dig a little bit on this one. Second, this verse is found in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's important that we understand the context because the context helps us understand its meaning. So the bigger context of the Sermon on the Mount is it's talking about what it looks like to live as citizens in the kingdom of God. That's one of the reasons why the Sermon on the Mount has also been referred to as the constitution of the kingdom. Third, the immediate context in which that verse falls into the actual uh, chapter itself It falls in between a section of judging people and the golden rule, and that section is right in between. The next part of the verse is it talks about teachings on persistence in prayer, giving good gifts, as well as treating people well. The reason I bring that up is because the context is not specifically talking about sharing your faith as much as it is talking about how do we interact with people and God as citizens of the kingdom of God. that make sense? Okay, so now let's talk about the specific saying itself. Jesus's point is that there are certain truths of the Christian life, certain truths of our faith that will not be understood by those who are not believers. And as a result of that, you're not to share those with those who are totally antagonistic towards the things of God. In this particular context, Jesus called those individuals spiritual dogs or spiritual swine. And I know that's a harsh statement, but it's metaphorically being used of those who have no appreciation for that which is holy and righteous. That type of person will take the things that are holy, in this case, the pearls of God's word, and they are going to treat those as foolishness and see those as an insult, now, that should not surprise any of us. It shouldn't surprise us that people who do not know the Lord would take the truths of God's word and see them as foolishness. In fact, that's what Scripture says is going to happen. So for a believer to attempt to explain those things and convince an unbeliever that those things are true, many times that is going to be an uphill battle. They are spiritually discerned. and If the person does not have the indwelling presence of God, they're not going to understand them. But there is one truth that is central to the Christian faith that is to be shared with those who are lost and those who are saved. Do you know what that one is? It's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ that is a message that is to be preached to all people it doesn't matter if they're saved or if they're lost we keep preaching the message of the cross god uses the foolishness of the gospel being proclaimed to bring people to himself we see that the gospel according to scripture is the power of god unto salvation for those who believe we keep preaching the gospel now here's the caveat when jesus sent out his disciples two by two with the gospel message. He tells them in Mark chapter six, verse 11, and if in any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. The command, shake the dust off your feet, appears only four times in the New Testament. Every time it appears, it is in connection with Jesus sending out the 12 with the gospel message. Shaking the dust off your feet is a symbolic indication that that individual has done everything they can do in that situation, and they carry no further responsibility At that moment, Jesus was telling his disciples that they were to preach the gospel to everyone. You are to stay where the gospel is received. And if the message or the messenger is rejected, he says, shake the dust off your feet and move on. In effect, y'all have to listen to me. In effect, what he's saying is when a person has rejected, clearly rejected the gospel message, that should not interfere with the furtherance of the gospel around them. In other words, if somebody is saying, I'm not gonna to move to the next person until this person gets saved, you don't know if that person's going to get saved. But when that individual has clearly heard the gospel message, and they have rejected it, and they don't want anything to do with it, and they are, they are discrediting it, and they are attacking it, and they're antagonistic towards the things of God, here's what Jesus is saying. Shake the dust off your feet and move on. Here's why that's important. We need to be led of the Spirit as to when the moment to walk away and when to keep on sharing. And if the Spirit of God says it's time to walk away, we are in disobedience if we stay. If the Spirit of God says, nope, keep sharing, keep sharing, keep sharing, we need to keep sharing. So this text is an important one because if God says move on, we move on. But Jesus' instruction of shake the dust off your feet, it reminds us, that we are responsible for our obedience to share the gospel. We are not responsible for the person's receptiveness of that gospel message. That is between them and the Lord. Even if God says it's time to move on, it doesn't mean you don't keep praying. It doesn't mean you don't keep a door open for the conversation. And it also doesn't mean that you do not have compassion for that person. Just before the cross, Jesus looked out over Jerusalem, looking at the people who rejected him as king and as Messiah. It says he wept over Jerusalem. There always needs to be compassion in the heart of God's people, even when other people reject the gospel message. Question number seven. God is perfect God is light. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, how did darkness exist in the presence of God? All right, so that basic question has been the center of theological and philosophical debates for a couple thousand years. Um, To show you how far back that question goes, some of the early Christian apologists like Tertullian Back from AD 155 to 220, uh, Ephraim of Syria, Basil of Caesarea, Augustine from AD 354 to 430, all of those wrote extensively on that exact topic. So I'm going to give you the short answer, and then if you so desire to study any of the thousands of volumes that have been written on this, I would encourage you to check the details out afterwards. So if we read the context of Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, the light that is created in verse number 3 is light specific to this world, to this universe, to this point of creation. It's a part of the creation narrative. However, we are also very clear in the fact that God existed far before the universe was ever created. So when 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says God is light... In him, there is no darkness at all. It is simply a statement about the radiance of God's presence, about his glory, about the illumination of who he is. The glory that is spoken of in that text is not a created glory. It existed far before his creation of this world. So in God's sovereign mind as creator, He chose to illumine this world, not by the presence of his glory, but rather by his creation, the sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxies. Based on that basic understanding, there's two types of light. There is light that comes from his presence, and there is light that comes through his creation. The light of his presence seems to speak of light that has been in heaven since eternity past and will always be there. In fact, if you go further in the book of Revelation chapter 21, verse number 23, it says that one day in heaven, listen to this phrase, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamb is its lamp. In other words, someday down the road, the illumination of the sun, the moon that we have here, it is no longer necessary It will be the illuminating presence of God one day in heaven. Last question. Um, Question number eight. How can I get information about Sherwood or connect with the church? Great question. We just so happen to have this beautiful new connection center that is right out in the atrium right now. It's hard to make your way past it. Um, That's one place you can get information on the church. Another one is the Sherwood app. Some people don't know we even have an app. We have an app. There's all sorts of information there. Also, I encourage you to check out sherwoodbaptist.net, all sorts of things. Uh, Sherwood has more social media accounts than anybody should ever have, I think. Um, We're on all platforms, but there's a reason for this. It's not just because we want something else to do. But you will notice that there are certain people that are only on certain platforms. So as a result of that, we have a lot of platforms and we put out a lot of information to help people know what's going on. Also, a piece that we have introduced this year is a church texting feature where if somebody's looking for information about maybe a key piece, whether or not it's information about baptism or about relationship with God, maybe it's about information with the church, about membership, maybe they need prayer, they can text one of those key words to a number, that is 229-800-0095. So there's the information. So literally, if a person is saying, I just want more information about the church, you can text the word info to that number and it will send you information on the church. If you're saying, I don't know what it means to have a relationship with God, you can text the word relationship to that number and somebody will contact you about relationship with God. So it's a basic way for people to be able to get the information that they need. Make sense? Great. Great. It is 6.52, and that clock says I've got 53 seconds left. My gift to you is that extra 49 seconds right now. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this night. Thank you, Lord, for just time to gather and answer questions. Lord, I pray that you would continue to build the exact community that you desire right here. And God, we thank you for what you're doing in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful night.